Yes, welcome to For and Against on the Diamond Teeter Media Network, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play. I'm Paul Roach, and joining me to look over some of the biggest controversies in sport today, let me introduce to you Simon Johnson. G'day, Jono. G'day, Roachie. David Gill. Hello to you, Bear. G'day, Roachie. And the clear leader in the For and Against Lockdown League, Stephen Riley, joining us once again from Melbourne. G'day, Riles. Thank you, Paul. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, how you doing? And uh, all righty, now listen, coming up in the show, the Tokyo Olympics, will they or won't they? We'll talk to Darren Kane, a sports lawyer whose work you may have seen in the Nine Media, in their papers, uh, about some of the considerations and implications. Ageism in sport. Have you noticed there are so many old champions at the moment? Cameron Bancroft compels us to revisit sandpaper in South Australia, South Australia, South Africa, actually. And there's a new and very different TV deal for the A-League. We wrap up, as always, with Red Card, Yellow Card, where we point the finger at questionable off-field behaviours across the sporting globe. Please do use the hashtag RCYC if you see one to let us know if you think one would qualify for the Red Card, Yellow Card segment. Uh, speaking of the socials, Twitter at for and against underscore insta for dot and dot against. Uh, you can email us for and against at hotmail.com. And did we ever bother with Facebook, Jono? Oh, still waiting. Zuckerberg's you know, <laughs> waiting on a call back. <laughs> <laughs> my, my people are speaking to his people, so... Wait- St- stuck in legal, I think. <laughs> yeah, waiting for an offer, the mate. Oversight board has decided that we're not fit for Facebook consumption. <laughs> Clive Palmer and we, we've been banned. Oh, well, on that note, let's get into it. It's been uh, fascinating to watch the IOC being compressed sort of further and further into their uh, no doubt well-appointed corner by the growing weight of medical and public opinion that the Tokyo Olympics, which is scheduled to start on the 23rd of July, should not go ahead. Even the Asahi Shimbun, I think it is, newspaper, an Olympic partner, a local newspaper obviously, has called for its cancellation. Uh, but as local tech billionaire Masayoshi Son tweeted... It's Japan that has far more to lose than Olympic officials, which for mine nicely encapsulates the tension uh, we've got at play here. So, so team, will it or should it go ahead to Tokyo Games? Jono? Uh, look, in short, probably shouldn't. But, yeah, absolutely it will. I think the commercial and legal ramifications of it not going ahead are, are too high. Uh-huh. Riles, will it slash should it? It will not go ahead, Paul. Uh, I know there's billions of dollars Ooh. at stake, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I can tell you there's still time, and it will not go ahead. Mm, okay, Gilly, what are your thoughts? I don't think it should go ahead, and I don't think it will either. I know there's a lot of money at stake, but those numbers are small um, compared to the consequences of the pandemic really getting out of control. Mm, Jono, I think I'm with you. It, it will, mm. uh, in my humble opinion. Uh, but joining us now to explore the underlying complexities surrounding this and other Olympian type of questions is Darren Kane, a sports and commercial lawyer who also writes for the Nine Media Papers. Welcome, Darren. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, so, Darren, before we get into some of the detail, what do you think? Will or will or should the Tokyo Olympics go ahead? I think it'll definitely go ahead. Um, what sort of an Olympic experience that is for the for the athletes that are competing is a, another question entirely. Um, should it go ahead? Um, you know, obviously, if you were 
sitting down for the first time planning the Olympics, you know, uh, in in March last year, you definitely wouldn't have an Olympics in in this in this era. Um, but the flip side of that is is that seventy five percent or thereabouts of athletes only ever go to get to go to one Olympic Games, and you know it would be denying the opportunity for a, a generation, if you were, of athletes. Who, who wouldn't get another chance? So I think it'll definitely go ahead. Um, it'll take some. It would take something absolutely catastrophic to happen for it to be to be cancelled. Um, and I don't think it'll be cancelled. Um, but it's going to be very, very difficult uh, Olympic Games in many respects. Really interested, I think, Darren, to hear your perspective. I guess with your sports law background, just focusing in on the legal aspects, if we could, for for a minute, um, arising from potentially the Olympics not going ahead. So, I mean, I had a quick look at this. So I understand there's a, an agreement that um, is the agreement that's in place between the Olympic, the IOC and the host country every every year. It seems to be one of the most one-sided termination provisions I've ever seen. But you able to t- tell us a little bit about how that operates and, and how that feeds into what you think might happen? Well, look, I think I, I, I've seen the agreement that you're speaking about um, whether that's the only document that's in place or not, I don't know. I'd be surprised if there aren't you know, myriad other contracts that are in place. Um, also, this, this agreement was signed before uh, the pandemic hit. So, you know, we don't necessarily know what changes have been made to this. And I did see something, uh, I can't remember what page it was on now, but I did see something in here that made specific reference to the games having to happen in 2020, which clearly they haven't haven't happened. Um, <laughs> but in terms of it being one-sided, it's effectively supply and demand, isn't it? So, you know, when, when the Tokyo were awarded the games in or about 2013, um, no doubt, and I can't remember which, which cities were bidding for it, but no doubt there are a number of cities bidding for it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's something that tends to have, yeah, they've changed the bidding process now. But... Um, back then, um, you know, it's it's really put on a take it or leave it basis, isn't it? Um, you know, it's it's not like, well, you know, do you want to have an Olympic Games? Well, well, yes, and let's go into a big six months negotiation about what the contract's going to say. It's it's put on a <laughs> take it or leave it basis because the IOC no doubt know that there are plenty of other cities that will will take it if if Tokyo were to leave it, as it were. So, so, Darren, they've put it off for one year. Why can't they put it off for another? Uh, I think, look, I guess they could, couldn't they? Well, it'll clash with the Commonwealth Games, obviously. <laughs> it's a very relevant consideration. Um, I, 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 I guess they could. If, if they really wanted to, they could. But the IOC will, will no doubt have resourcing issues. Um, it's a very good reason why back in 1994 they decided not to have winter and summer games in the same year. They, they now stagger those. Um, the disruption that it would cause to the Japanese people to put it off a second time. Um, the IOC has been pretty strong about, you know, they won't postpone it again. They'll, they'll either proceed in 2021 or it'll get cancelled. Um, you know, even just, even just for the the organisers to secure the venues. Like, you know, once, once these games were put off for a year, they would have had to have gone and re-secure all the venues. Um, whatever they were going to do post-Olympics with the, the, the village, they would have had to have delayed that for a year. Um, 
it, it just it just becomes very difficult doing that from a practical point of view in a perfect world and if you were having you know the the olympics in a in a purpose built um venue that wasn't going to be used for anything else um you know regardless as to precisely when you had the olympics maybe you could do that but uh, i don't think that'll happen I think Japan still has leftover soccer stadiums from their World Cup, which haven't been used in about 10 years. Just going back to to the contract, the, the Japanese government and the city of Tokyo are kind of taking the position, well, under the contract, it's not our call. It's the IOC that gets to make the call. Do you feel like their hands are really tied that way or are they throwing the ball for either political or, or legal reasons? Look, the, the document that I've seen, it's a pretty fair analysis that, um, the, the, the Japanese, uh, well, w- whether it be the Tokyo Organising Committee or, or whether it be the city of Tokyo, whether it be Japan, um, they don't really have much say in, in deciding whether or not the games proceed under the document that I've seen. Now, I, I, there could be other documents that could have been amended and, and we don't know. And I, um, you know, without you know, knowing full well everything that you've got in front of you, it'd be sort of dangerous to presume. But you know, taking that one document at face value, um, the, the, the Tokyo organisers don't really have much of a say in it. It does fall back on the IOC. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's the IOC's birthday party. And um, this is a, hmm. you know, a, a gigantic, um, you know, venue agreement, isn't it? Where, where they're, they're basically hiring a, a whole city as a venue and, and, and the city is, is quite willingly signing up to that. Darren, it's not just their birthday party, but it's also their payday, right? They being the IOC, clearly. So it's as much commercial pressure as anything else, or is it, would you say? Or is it, the, is it the, just the general prestige of holding the games or the, the need for them to, to be seen? Or is, are there some significant commercial pressures from, for example, the, the TOP, the, the main sponsors, etc., in ensuring this happens? You have quite clear that this will happen. Is it commercial or are there other reasons for your, 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 the clarity of your opinion? Of course, part of it's commercial. Like, you know, the, the, you've only got to look at the, the international federations, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm involved in, in FINA. I sit on their legal committee. Um, I'm involved with the International Weightlifting Federation. I'm the chairman of their Reform and Governance Commission. And I, I know enough about how IFs are structured to know that they get a lot of their money from um, the sale of, of broadcast and media rights through the Olympic Games. Um, that's where hmm. that's where the IOC makes most of its money, and then they feed that down into the international federations, who then, you know, you know, feed it down into you know developing the sport in whatever ways that they they elect to do so. And you know, if if you all of a sudden, I don't know what the broadcast contracts say, but you know, in a very sort of basic way, if the broadcasters aren't getting any material to broadcast, you can't imagine that. Um, there's going to be too much money changing back, you know, to the or changing hands back to the IOC, uh, and you know it wouldn't be a financial catastrophe necessarily. The IOC's got plenty of money in the bank, but it'll make a gigantic dent. Yeah, the numbers are quite extraordinary from what what I've seen. So Japan have already spent um, Aussie dollars twenty eight billion on the Olympics. So that's <laughs> blown out by 200%. I think the budget was $9 billion at the start. The advertising um, revenue or the, the rights that have been paid are about $3 billion. 
So you can see, I mean, getting back to those commercial realities you were talking about before, if Japan did try and unilaterally terminate the games, even though they don't have any right to do it, they'd be up for all sorts of damages claims uh, and there'd be litigation left, right and centre. I think the big issue, isn't it, Darren, is the insurance position and what sort of insurance has been taken out by the organising committee um, and whether or not, I guess, force majeure provisions and those things might apply do you have any sort of thoughts as to how that that might play out? Absolutely. I, I, I had a thumb through this agreement before. I couldn't I, I couldn't neatly find the force majeure provisions. I don't know whether they're in there or not. Um, there isn't one. There isn't one. Okay. Well, there you go. So for us for us non legal types, what's what's that mean? Well, so that's the, that, that's a that's a it's a contractual act of God clause. So you can you can write a contract that will 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 can say various things, but it basically will say that, you know, if if a party is prevented or sometimes it'll say hindered from from delivering on its side of the bargain because of, you know, war, terrorism, um, and they will go to the, you know, into some detail in trying to define for the purposes of that contract what force majeure is, then the party can't be held liable for its, its non-supply of its side of the bargain. Um, but that's a that's a contractual thing. It just doesn't apply generally. It's got to actually be written into the contract. Um, and if it's not written into this contract, then we're not going to get really all that much, you know, down the path there. In terms of the insurances, um, uh, you know, you saw, for example, last year the, the Wimbledon tennis tournament was in a little bit of a different mm. position to most other major sporting events because uh, the All England Club had... had um, you know, in its wisdom, um, procured pandemic um, insurance. So insurance. If, the, if the if the if the if the tournament you know got you know cancelled because of a pandemic, then I think they got paid out a hundred million quid or one hundred twenty five million quid. Now that insurance was probably able to be purchased, you know, before the pandemic. One, one suspects you, you you couldn't go and get it now. <laughs> so, so, so I don't know. Um, I don't know when the uh, I don't know when the IOC and when the when the organisers purchased their insurance. I don't know what their where their policies say, but um, you know, to to uh, you'd have to really want to trust your source that says that oh well the IOC's got insurances because you don't know precisely what they've got insurances for. Darren, yeah, usually usually I'm a big uh, proponent of money talks and, and this is definitely going to go ahead. Uh, like I said before, I'm not so convinced this time around, but I'm, I'm fascinated that, that you think this is happening. This is definitely happening. And I'm fascinated from the point of view of the swimmers and the weightlifters. When they get there... And and you, you've you've written about this a bit in the press about the how are they going to manage the um, all of the testing? Um, I'm I'm fascinated how our athletes are going to protect themselves if 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 they're not competing on the first day. How are they going to keep themselves in a space that where they think they can they can compete? Well, I guess there's I guess there's aspects to it, isn't it? Like the the, the first aspect is. Um, every one of certainly of our athletes will have at least been offered the opportunity to be fully vaccinated. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, you know, you you you'll you'll be in a 
a bubble environment over there, but of course the bubble's probably going to have plenty of holes in it because you've got people coming from four corners of the world. You've got people coming from over 200 countries. I think there's going to be about 80,000 people, you know, going into Tokyo for the purposes of the games once you, you know, factor in the athletes, the officials, um, media, uh, everyone else. There's going to be about 80,000 people there, right? So, you know, sooner or later there's going to be an outbreak because... Even if they're testing the athletes, and they're talking, I think they're talking about testing every athlete every day or something along those lines. Mm. Um, wow. I don't really know what they're doing about the coaches and the officials and the you know the 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 the, the delegations from each of the two hundred countries. Um, so you, you, know, you even got to look at you just look at what's happened in in Melbourne in the last week, like you know. You know, chains are only as strong as their weakest link, and there's plenty of weak links in all of this. Um, I don't know for the life of me, like, you know, no doubt, you know, the sort of podcast you do, um, you would have dealt with um, elite athletes from time to time, and probably many times. And, and they're very singularly minded. They're very focused, right, very rigid. They don't really like things happening that sort of upsets their routine. How the hell they're going to go being tested every day and then who knows how accurate these tests are? Um, who knows who, who's administering the tests? Um, there could be false positives. There could be, you might have a test and you you know you glow red for that and you go, okay, well, you just stand over here for a minute and I'll go, hang on a minute, I've got to go train. What am I going to do there? <laughs> like it could unravel really quickly and... Um, you know the, the the playbook that the AOC, the IOC has put out um, thus far really doesn't drill into the level of detail that you might expect. And for example, they deal with the the, the testing regime that they're going to put in place over over the course of about two or three pages. Um, you sort of line that up with what Sun Yang's fighting about in the Court of Arbitration for Sport at the moment about. Um, the, the, the protocols that either were or were not followed when he was tested at the end of, I think, 2018. Um, those protocols, the, the international standard that WADA's got for that, that runs for about 80 pages, and it's really dense text. Mm. Whereas mm. what we're going to have here is, is you know, no doubt the, the ISC will come out with more detailed, you know, policies going forward. But at the moment, you kind of go, well, okay, if you're going to come and do some doping control on me, then um, at least there's a system, right? But if you're going to conduct 15,000, you know, first instance corona tests a day, like, who the hell knows what's going on there? Darren, you're painting a picture of a disaster waiting to happen, which kind of puts me in Steve's camp of I'm, I'm still not 100% sure that this is going to go ahead. If we are in a situation where the Japanese government says we can't let this happen and we're stopping it irrespective of what's in the contracts, how would the IOC or insurers or any other th- interested third parties um, go, practically speaking, trying to sue the Japanese government? Or I- in those circumstances, how would things play out practically? Um, I think it'd be a pretty brave move for the Japanese organisers to unilaterally um, shut down the games. At the end of the day, they've got a contract subject to Swiss law. Um, I can't remember um, 
whether whether proceedings have to be brought in Switzerland or, or where they would have to be brought. But you'd, you'd have to imagine that if, for example, the IOC claimed on its insurance, then the IOC might subrogate to the insurer who, who might then go after the host city. I could see that playing out. And whilst the IOC may have a good relationship with Japan and Tokyo and the organising committee, um, insurance companies tend to have different motivations. Um, so you could get into a, a really, really ugly situation. Sounds fantastic. We should put our hands up for this matter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Darren, listen, thanks very much for joining us on the show. All our predictions, of we've pinned our colours to the mast from a predictions point of view. Uh, I'm in your camp, it'll go ahead, but it'll be a very interesting Olympics beast, that's for sure. So thanks thanks very much for your time. Anytime, guys, anytime. Darren Kane there, sports lawyer and writer for the Nine Media on Sports Law Matters. Uh, John, I believe you've managed to weave golf into the show yet again. Something about a misunderstanding of, of what a Masters tournament really is. A Masters tournament. Nice pun there, right? Like yeah, yep. yeah. Uh-huh. So Phil, Phil Mickelson uh, won the US PGA last weekend. At oh, the age... so it wasn't the Masters? No, not the Masters. Oh, that's true. But, yeah, that but he's... He, he... <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were talking about... Could not have scripted that Masters better. Masters events, given how old he is. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I was... Yeah, yeah okay. but I missed. Anyway, go on. Anyway, he was 50, Rochi. So this got me thinking. Good age. So Phil Mickelson, he's a bit of a hero of mine. He's a bit of a loose cannon. He plays aggressively. Uh, always loved w- watching Lefty play. Uh, he had won five majors before the weekend and won his sixth. Um, so an absolute legend of the game. But um, what a champion. So he won at the age of 50. Got me thinking about... And that's the oldest golfer to have won a Masters? To have ever won a major. Major, sorry. Yeah. yeah. So I think the previous record was a 48-year-old. Jack Nicklaus famously won back in 1986 when he was 46. And I think, you know, everyone thought that that was uh, ridiculous that he could come out and win at that age. Tiger Woods won at 43 recently. But it got me thinking, this is this year, Tom Brady won the Super Bowl at the age Mm -hmm. of 43, Mm -hmm. I think it was. We've got Mm -hmm. a bunch of tennis players we'll come to shortly who are in the... uh, the older years of their lives. Does it give us hope, Rochi, that <laughs> that that us in our I don't know what are we early oh, so, yeah, something just, something like that? Yeah. But is there a common theme here? I just wanted to throw it to the panel just to get people's thoughts. Oh, we've certainly got uh, opportunity. You know, Martina Navratilova uh, won her last uh, mixed doubles major in her you know, early fifties. I'm pretty sure. So uh, I I am just getting ready to announce. The beginning of my tennis career. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is actually how I was going to get us out of the segment, Riles, to, to say that there is still hope for your Wimbledon that Wimbledon victory that you that you've always pined for since you're since we were at school. <laughs> Didn't um, Big Phil looked so buff though? On I mean, actually, when they compared photos of Phil Nickel, Phil Mickelson aged thirty five or forty compared to Phil Mickelson aged fifty, the yep. the fifty year old Phil is buffer. Lena, 
more focused. He's doing meditation. Yeah. Closed his eyes before most shots, and he was going through a very kind of deep routine. He uh, fasts for intermittent fasting, yeah, forty-eight yeah. hours at a time, or three yeah. days at a time. So I think he does this thirty-six-hour fast, and he drinks this weird coffee blended drink. But sometimes he does a five-day fast as well. So he's really taken it very seriously. But it, I mean, is it a sports science thing? In all seriousness, mm. is, is it something that's come out in the last ten or fifteen years that has enabled? these aging sporting stars to keep playing at their peak or or is it a mental thing because we're not just talking about um, sports where it's purely about strength or purely about speed a lot of these um, stars for example kelly slater lebron james cameron smith in rugby league they're smart players as well as being great athletes they're, they're known as being exceptionally good exponents of their craft so is it a combination of experience is it sports science what is it it's it's quite a bizarre phenomenon that's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. I think you've got the, the combination spot on. The players that have lasted have been smart players. And when the sports science is able to extend their longevity, they're able to keep going because they're smart. There are some exceptions. Usain Bolt, you know, won his last gold medals in his early 30s, should not be able to happen, right? And I don't know. I mean, Dave might tell me different, but I, I don't think there's a lot of gamesmanship or smarts that goes into uh, a 100 meter race. 9.8, yeah. <laughs> but the others, uh, the others are smart. Tom Brady, you know, he he took on Patrick Mahomes and just outsmarted him around the field. Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, that is all in their head. And there's enough sports science to keep the legs moving. You, you know, I, I actually think uh, I know where this started. I can I can remember it very very clearly was Mal Meninga. Mal Meninga. Mm-hmm. Mal Meninga, when he was 34, was still playing State of Origin and for Australia. All the people in Victoria who are locked down with me down here don't know who I'm talking about. But Mal Meninga played rugby league until he was 34 and he was bigger, stronger, more dominating at 34 than he was at 24. Uh, and that started it all. And uh, smarter? <laughs> Big Mal, he's, he's featured a couple of times on Red Card, Yellow Card and various other things. And his great political career, yeah. that was... That, yeah, it's been a while since we Definitely showed up his, um, his intellect. Yeah. But um, I, I think it's... I think Mel was was a, a physical freak, and I think sports science is obviously part of the equation here, but it's happening more often in this day and age, and part of that is sports science becoming more advanced. But I think there's also an economic element to this. Mm. And if you look at... Uh, we talked about tennis. You look at Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. Steve, you might be able to help me here, but they've won the last. Well, them and Andy Murray have won the all of the majors for all of the Grand Slams for the last decade. almost decade yeah. now. Yeah. But then, yeah, something I think is like twenty-one of the last twenty-four. Oh, something like. So if you if you look at the the Forbes um, rich list for athletes from last year, Federer one hundred and six million. Djokovic, 44 million, Nadal, 40 million, not n- another single tennis player on that list. So those guys are playing the game with resources that the average player on the mm. ATP circuit can't dream of. They have their entourages. They probably have a full-time masseuse. They probably have a full-time psychologist. They have a full-time weights coach, blah, 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 blah. But if there's that much money in it, why aren't the younger players coming through and actually taking their piece of the cake? That's I'm not sure about the the economics of that aspect. Well, Dave's yeah. saying the capital's already in place, so they've got the multi-million, so they can afford to have the best of everything. Yeah, and like and Barry Chambers, whatever. And golf's the same. I mean, there there are a few exceptions like Rory, but Phil and Tiger are on a different plane financially to any other golfer 
Yeah, no, I suppose that's right. I also think apart from the sports science, it's also not only about getting them on the field, but it's about the recovery as well. So it's enabling the older players to, to have that ability to recover really well and, and practice as much as they can. That's what Tom Brady has said a few times. That for him, it's about recovery and being able mm. to get back on the park. So I, I think there's another side of this, which is sort of the, the reflection of the smarter players surviving. And I will update that number. I said they've won 58 of the last 70 Grand Slam titles just the big three, Federer, Nadal yeah. and Djokovic. But you ask why the young wow. people haven't you know, come and taken them on, taken the money, taken over. I, I think that some of the sports science actually got in the way and we started picking people based on uh, a skin test, uh, based on their vertical leap. And we started developing athletes for sports who weren't smart. They were just passing a, 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 a test, a siloed mm. test for certain skills. So that's why the big Canon servers can do okay on a weekly in, in an ATP event, but they can't do seven matches at a, at a Grand Slam. Mm. Well, I think honourable mention for mine anyway needs to go to um, that famous Polish athlete, Stanislaus Kowalski. He competed in the Polish uh, Veterans Championship at the age of 107 in 2018, wow. and he ran the 100 metres in 34.5 seconds. So well done, Stanislaus. <laughs> if we're talking about that is, athletes. That is good. Not bad. Spectacularly well. Go, Stan. Tell you what, I, I might not beat him at the way I'm going at the moment. Uh, well, there you go. Something to keep an eye on over the next, say, three decades, uh, the ageing of our sporting stars. And on to the shootout where we cover a few more topics in slightly shorter fashion. I want to start with cricket. Uh, look, it's sure to be one to be, it's sure to be the sore, not just one of, but the sore on the Australian cricket psyche for some time to come, especially when it uh, keeps getting picked at. It's the so-called sandpaper gate palaver, and topping up the fuel on the fire recently it was Cameron Bancroft. Did anybody see Cam's ban- uh, Cam's comments uh, that relate back to the sandpaper gate incident? It's pretty ugly, Rochi. Um, you could describe it as a sore. I'd say it's a scab that keeps mm. getting picked. It's just ugly, isn't it? Um, when he came out and said, in asked a, a Dorothy Dix a question, I thought, you know, what do you remember about what happened there? You know, did anyone else know? And most people would have ex- expected him to toe the party line and say, oh, no, um, you know, it was just me and Davey and Steve Smith might have known something about it or didn't stop, didn't stop us. But he said, um, well... You know, were the bowlers involved? It probably goes without saying. And, you know, that set off a tsunami of a reaction, didn't it? Um, It's one of those things that I think will just continue to be an issue for the Australian team. Totally. And just watch this space until everyone writes their autobiographies in five years' time. I think I'd love to hear what Davey Warner really thinks about this. I I think it's really interesting he used the phrase goes without saying. Well, exactly. It went without saying. They still haven't said it yet. (laughs) And so we fill in the gaps, and I think we're filling in them filling them in pretty obviously and I agree with Simon let's let's wait for the memoirs as soon as Davey Warner's retired it's you know I've got my Christmas gift picked out <laughs> we're all we're all uh, whatever David Warner says is obviously complete gospel so <laughs> when, when will that come out <laughs> 2025 well he's a pretty smart player so it could be a long long time away you know Michael Clark was involved again, which made me think that maybe this is a, a little bit of a storm in a teacup because in Mike, what ways was he involved? Sorry. Well, he he was he, he was uh, interviewed and kind of um, was adding fuel to the fire, shall we say? And he used this strange kind of analogy about 
cricketers and elite sports people knowing their tools really well. And he was he was saying that if somebody had taken a pen and drawn a small number one on his bat, anywhere on his bat, um, he would have noticed. So how could these bowlers have not noticed the sandpapering of the ball? And I, I okay. wasn't fully convinced by That's that one. So nice and tenuous. Uh, look, I, as far as I'm concerned, uh, this is where COVID is a good thing. Thank goodness the Barmy Army won't be able to enter the country for the upcoming Summer of Ashes cricket. Uh, we love our lists here on For and Against, and any, any self-respecting sports business organisation or publication will uh, want to periodically produce a list of the world's biggest clubs or best-paid athletes. And indeed, Gilly, you referenced one from Forbes a moment ago. Well, uh, my friends here think that we're going to be talking about the former, the biggest clubs, which we'll get to. But I've actually got a quick pop quiz on the latter. And Gilly, I didn't know you were going to reference the Forbes list, but a mob called Sportico out of the US has recently released uh, a, a very recent list of the world's 100, uh, 100 highest earning athletes. Now, close your computer down. Don't look at the Forbes list because this is cheating. I just want to see uh, who do you think topped the list? So the, the world's 100 highest uh, earning athletes. Top of the list. Currently playing? Uh, yes, they're all current. They're all current. Yep. Uh, I would say LeBron. Steve-O? Lewis Hamilton. Oh, Hamilton's on, on. So LeBron comes in at fifth at 100 mil. Lewis Hamilton's on the list, top motor racing person, but I think it's a 30th, 40th, 50th. I'm going to say footballer. I'm going to say Lionel Messi. So Messi and Ronaldo are one and two. Conor McGregor. Uh, Controversially, because I don't think uh, anything involving cage fighting should be recognised as a sport, but nonetheless, uh, and the reason being, the reason he earned 208 mil is because he made 170 mil selling his whiskey. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, Legend. Proper number 12. Um, So which sport has the biggest representation in the top 100? Football. As in soccer? Yeah. Nah, third with only 16. Riles, what Uh, do you reckon? I was going to say basketball, but yeah, basketball. Yeah, close. Second with Major 31. League Baseball. Uh, baseball doesn't really feature mm-hmm. at all, I think. There might be one or two. NFL. Yeah. Yeah. NFL. NFL with 32 uh, and tennis six, golf five. Uh, two more questions. There's one cricketer on the list. Who is that? Buzzers, please. Coley. Virat Coley. And only two women on the list. Who are they? Serena Williams is one. Correct. She comes in at 44th with about 35 mil. Naomi Osaka. Correct. Uh, good guess. 15th. Uh, at 55 mil. Uh, and there was a little about the, the English Premier League as well, I gather. Uh, the most, the richest the richest clubs. Gilly, what was the... Uh... I think the top six, well, the, the value of the club that's sixth in the list is almost the which same as the... Which is Spurs, is almost as much as the rest of the clubs the in the Premier League. Mm. And Manchester United's value is probably double the value of the bottom 14 clubs. Right, okay. Bring back the Super League. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. Yeah, good point. We've, we Some of us predicted that last show, didn't we? Uh, the European Super League. And uh, I think the, the teams was interesting. So the most valuable uh, team on the planet is the Yankees at 6.75 bill. Shortly uh, behind them is the Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys. But yeah, it's it's all the US, all the US teams, with the exception of Man U at 8 at four and a half billion, I think the I think Liverpool might have come in at tenth. Yeah, and I think they did say the US clubs or franchises, I guess they are in the US, they much more strongly represented on that list because mm. there is no relegation in US sports, so mm. the income stream is much more dependable. Okay, uh, and therefore, football clubs, even though it's a much bigger sport globally, mm. um, doesn't have the same multiple attached to its earnings. 
and valuations of US sports franchises are going berserk. And uh, you know, people are paying big money for NBA teams now that you know people thought two bill was a lot long, you know, a few years ago. Now they're paying you know two and two and three times that. It's unreal. Uh, so there you go. We'll have a little lists uh, here on for and against. Uh, on A-League, a new TV deal for the A-League has been announced uh, where one of the new carriers is called Paramount Plus. Steve, it sounds like they're going to make A-League the movie because when I see, think Paramount, I just think uh, I think the big screen. Is that what's going Look, on? It, it's actually, uh, you got to go back a couple of years and remember that CBS bought Channel 10 and Channel 10 have a thing called 10 All Access and 10 All Access is going to be rebranded the same way that CBS All Access was recently rebranded in the States as Paramount Plus. Ah, that explains that. Gilly, what are your thoughts on the, on the new deal? I think it's good for the A-League. I'm, I'm waiting to hear Stephen attack it. I know he loves the A-League. He's been a, a, a long-time <laughs> true believer in the A-League. Actually, the A-League is almost 20 years old, so it's kind of oh, hanging yeah. in there, but it really it really needed this. And it's it's not a huge deal in the, in the spectrum of TV broadcasting for sport, but it's very important for them and... I, I think the A-League is a good prof, uh, a good product. After going to the game last mm. weekend, like mm. you hadn't been to a game for ages. It was it yeah, was good right. stuff. And participation levels are still so high in Australia. So obviously um, uh, Paramount Plus think it's a worthwhile investment. But um, Stephen's about to tell me why that's <laughs> completely misguided. Oh, my goodness. Paramount Plus, what were it's they? It's very dependable, <laughs> Steve. So they're going to show this every Saturday night. Good luck. Um Look, 32 million bucks a year for the A-League. That's fantastic. Uh, it goes for five years, so that's really good. Uh, and I think, Dave, you should enjoy it while you can because even Foxtel didn't want to put it on one of their 75 different sports channels. So it's gone to the the, the, the only bidder, which was uh, Paramount+. Plus. Um, and look, it's an interesting one. I think Paramount+, Plus are a little bit late to the party, uh, but coming in with a sporting play is, it's a good thing to try. But I think the jury's still out. I'm not quite sure that rugby on stand was it was enough for rugby. So I think this is going to be a holding statement. And if it if it picks up, I would expect the A League will try and really parlay themselves onto um, a more prominent position on free to wear ten. Stan is certainly making noises about some good numbers in, in round rugby. In fact, I was just going to say, it's interesting to see what this means for the you know, f- future, I suppose, of, of Fox Sports, because whilst hardly mainstays of Fox Sports, both rugby and A-League have now left the comfort of the Fox, Foxtel slash Fox Sports teat. So obviously, you know, there's a lot of dependence on rugby league and, and AFL and cricket at Fox Sports. So it's not exactly they're gonna, not going to ruin their business model by, by these you know, second-tier sports finding new home, but, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether, say, a Supercars uh, at the end of their next deal, whether they find a, a similarly different home and whether these streaming services and, and, with, the, and with their free-to-air partners will just keep chipping away. So maybe it's a long-term watch on Fox Sports for mine. Look, I, I think we've got to remember that uh, a number of people around this virtual table were... You know, clapping their hands when David Gallup said, here it comes, here it comes. Football is going to take over and be the number one code in the country. And uh, <laughs> maybe this is it. I don't know. I'll, 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 I should retain an open mind, but I don't think so. No, you're not very good at the open mind, Steve. Good stuff. <laughs>
And finally, the Olympics. So we're revisiting the Olympics. Obviously, we talked to Darren Kane at the top of the show around some of the serious stuff around the Olympics. Uh, look, I know we talked Olympic fashion last show. We do love our sporting fashion here on For and Against. Uh, it's. I'm a bit confused. It's. This is a new ensemble that's been released. A secondary ensemble. Is, is this the day wear versus the? It's the opening ceremony wear. I oh, believe. Okay. Are you throwing to our fashion consultant, oh, our well, expert here? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Oh, sorry, Dave. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, you can hear the jealousy down the line. Whoa, wow. Bitter. Bitter. It, uh, you, ex- you execute, Jono. Gilly's got the theory. Thank. Thank you, Simon. <clears throat> So I was I was lavish in my praise of the the competition outfits. This um, opening ceremony um, collection of uniforms it's like a checklist of fashion disasters, like things that you oh, we're don't back. We're that back. you don't do in fashion. And I'm interested in Simon's opinion on this, but the the blazer and shorts are kind of bold and brazen and could oh, have pulled it off. But no, it's, I'm all for it. You like it? it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You like Great. it? Summer Olympics, absolutely. Maybe Bring without maybe without the tie. Very I, Bondi. I would have oh, left the tie, tie out. Yeah. But the um the scarfs on the ladies, they look like mm. air hostesses on a cheap yep. '70s airline. Fair. The um the short sleeve button up shirt never looks good. Short. Even the French can't pull that off. No, absolutely not. I mean, if you have big biceps, maybe, but I don't know. Yeah, so disaster. disaster. I'd just like to point out that all of the Australian team are slim as, big biceps. I think they'll all pull it off. They'll pull it off, yeah. Have you seen the outfit? Um, and speaking of, uh, of uniforms of athletes, or at least a specific athlete, uh, Steve-O, what have you uncovered? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, one of the highlights of the Olympics, which will be called off, so at least we're enjoying some of the athletes preparing with some of their events. <laughs> Uh, it will be Simone Biles, the amazing US gymnast. And uh, she's uh, come to the party in the Sporting Fashion Stakes in a US event uh, this week where she's got the, the bedazzled rhinestone um, uh, custom leotard sporting a picture of a goat. <laughs> uh, she's made the statement she's the greatest of all time. And she could only do it with those. What did is it? It's bedazzling. What was the things you used to put on the outfits? The shiny. You're on your own, here, Steve. No, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. Dave. Trust you. No, yeah, they're in a they're in a fashion, uh, Steve. Not not kindergarten uh, projects or whatever it is you're talking about. Uh, oh. <laughs> Fine. See if I can. They're good at being humble, those seppos, aren't they? You know, sticking a, a, a bedazzling goat on your uh, gymnastics gear. All right, well, let's, uh, let's move on into red card, yellow card. Yes, red card, yellow card, hashtag RCYC, where we drag back in the spotlight indiscretions of sporting types around the world. Uh, Jono, lead off. What do you got? Oh, look, Richie, I couldn't go past golf again. We're on oh, a bit of a roll. God. I know you love talking about golf. but have had USP- your quota, mate. The USPGA was on on the weekend. Yes, you, you know yes. this happened. It wasn't the Masters, I've learned. Indeed. So uh, what I want to talk about is a bit of a public spat between two of the biggest alphas on the tour and one of them behaving pretty badly. Now you're talking. So Bryson DeChambeau, uh, the mad scientist, and Brooks Kepka. Kepka? Kepka. 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 Never quite know how Uh, to pronounce it. He's a Saffir. Saffir? No, American. Oh, Kepka. Anyway, they've got a bit of a history. They don't get on. Brooks has previously complained about uh, Bryson's slow play. Um, Bryson, a.k.a. the Mad Scientist, then had a crack at Brooks about his appearance in a fitness magazine, saying that he didn't really have any abs. Brooks looks pretty good, I have to say. Brooks then posted something on Twitter saying, here's a photo of my four major trophies. 
And he said, you're right, Bryson, I am too short of a six-pack. Zing, because Bryson hadn't won a major at that point. Ooh. Anyway, this is all background. What happened at the PGA recently, uh, Brooks was being interviewed on TV and Bryson starts walking directly behind him. And on camera, as Brooks is being interviewed, you can hear Brooks uh, being asked a question about his bad putting. And I think Brooks said something like, um, yeah, the, I can't read the greens. It's been a tough week. And under his breath, sotto voce, but enough that the ca- cameras could pick it up, um, Bryson said, maybe just start your putts online, <laughs> which is a real sledge. And Brooks just completely lost it. Ah. And he and he actually started swearing. He said, I effing... On camera. Yeah, I effing lost my train of thought. Yeah, hearing that bullshit, effing Christ. So um, it was fantastic to actually see a genuine moment like that mm. and that rivalry. I mean, those two guys will probably be paired in the Ryder Cup later in the year. It used to be oh, awesome TV to watch. I, mm. I want to see those two guys in a UFC cage together. And if they do that, I don't. who would win, do you think? They're would both units. Yeah, They're both yeah, units. But that would be the biggest sporting event ever. It would. Would and they it, look good in a short sleeve button-up shirt or whatever it is? <laughs> Not button up. Uh, what was the, what was the expression? Anyway, you, you throw you throw Patrick Reed into that. Imagine the Kepka, <laughs> Kepka will win because Bryson would be lining up his punch for about ten minutes. Before he <laughs> um, so how you dish out the cards here? Yellow card to the the bloke in the background. Oh, it's both of them really. So yeah, uh-huh. yellow for our background, and then Brooks for losing it. Probably a yellow as well. Two yellows make a red. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, uh, Steve-O, what have you got for us? Look, I'm going back to uh, Shay Bolton uh, of the Richmond Football Club uh, down here in uh, in Melbourne town who uh, found himself making a $20,000 donation to charity mm. um, uh, for uh, exacerbating a nightclub fight. And and I think the card, I'm nominating the, the card, it, it, it is for him, but there's some honourable assists. <laughs> uh, I really love the way that the Richmond club sort of stood by him in the first place. He was standing up for his mate, and then his coach said, yeah, yeah we'd all do this and stand up for our mates. And uh, and thankfully the AFL came in over. The, I, I, I might point out while he was standing up for his mate, who he he did uh, break his wrist, and I don't know if he broke it. He sprained it, knocked himself out of play after taking one of the marks of the year. Mm. And the uh, mark of the year. The AFL said no, no, no. I don't think this is. I don't think we quite heard the full story. It's not quite sandpaper gate, but I think uh, I think Shea got off lightly with a twenty thousand dollar fine. And a yellow cut from for and against. Gilly, 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 what do you got? I'm I'm staying with AFL and uh, West mm. Coast player Willie Rioli, who was uh, narrowly uh, avoided uh, conviction for possession of a Schedule Two dangerous drug in a public place. So, if there's one place on the planet where you don't take prohibited substances, what what is that place? Or any place, of course, Singapore. Okay. Well, an international airport. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so it's kind yeah. of like a, a bit of a... It's a it's a red card, yellow card, but it's a bit of a, a Darwin award as well because not only was it in an international... That's Darwin, um, by the way, for everyone else playing. Yeah, apologies, sorry, bit of South Africa <laughs> slipping back in there. Not only did he, was he stupid enough to take these um, these substances into an international airport, but how did he hide them? Was it in the lining of his travel bag, a, a bodily cavity in the wheels of his toddler's bugaboo pram? no. A heavily taped package inside his shorts. Really? Yeah. So, I think that's a red card. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Evidently. Uh, look, I, I I hesitate to bring this one up, but John Hopewadi again. Yeah. Look, I mean, he's fairly famous for one thing and one thing only. And if you don't know what it is, I really don't have the the um. 
Yeah, look, it, it, on Manly and having eleven children. Yes, is that what you're talking about? That, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, 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 Hopper. And yeah. Uh, yes, Hopper exactly. Yeah. And on the field of play, doing some fairly dirty work to the opposition teams, <laughs> uh, involving a digit. We understand. He's come out of court. He, he, he's um, one of his kids was Will in, in court, or one of the one of the kids. He had court. Will sounds right. Yeah, he had cause to be in, uh, coming out of a courtroom, a uh, court complex. I think it was in Sydney. Uh, and the son is dressed up to the nines in a you know, $2,000 suit. And there's dad in front with the pull-down cap with the hoodie. And there's a graphic on the front of the hoodie that very much is a graphical rep- representation of what he got in a lot of trouble for on the football field. Really? Is that right? When, when we... No, you go on. Ask the uh, I was going to say, I'm when done. we do get um, DeChambeau and Kepka in a, in a UFC cage together, mm. we somehow need to get John Hyperwadi on the undercard mm. somehow. Yes, he was, Paul Gallen, he, was, he was giving the world the finger. Was uh, was wow. was Hopper? Um, yeah, and so that, and I, I think that's almost a red, really. Yeah, terrible. Just an attempt to uh, make light of uh, what was a pretty disgusting kind of act. No uh, good. Thanks, Hopper. He's old. I think it's fine. That's a good point. Well, he should still be playing though, shouldn't he? He's still he's he's not that old. Oh, good point. <laughs> no, red. Yep. Okay, there you go, straight red. Uh, and on that note, folks, it is time to wrap up for and against once again. So uh, see you later, Stephen Riley. See you, Paul. See you, fellas. You know, it occurs to me just, just with this Tokyo Olympics you know, taking place, it shouldn't take place, that uh, Southeast Queensland's bid for the Olympics in 2032, usually I'd say, well, that's ridiculous. They should hold it here in Melbourne. But we'll probably go, be going through lockdown version 75 by then. So, uh yeah, yeah, no. All right, take care, fellas. That was a long farewell from Stephen Riley. Goodbye, Jono. See you, see you, Richie. See you, Riles. That's more like it. And Gilly, goodbye to you. Very quick goodbye. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> oh, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget the socials for and, at for and against on Twitter, for dot and dot against on the Insta. It's goodbye from me, Paul Roach. Look forward to doing it all again and your company in about a month's time. Bye for now.